Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I'm your host, Matthew Keeble. And I hope everybody outside of BC had a great family day long weekend. Uh, we had it last week, as people probably know, but the rest of Canada, I hope you had a good long weekend. We missed you. Uh, but welcome back. Uh, we do have a pretty good show coming up this week. Actually, Come on, it's a great show. Uh, Leslie's going to drop in for the Geology Corner. We're going to talk a little bit about preliminary economic assessments, uh, feasibility studies, uh, and what investors should look for in terms of things like um, equivalency grades um, and certain like aspects about metallurgy and things you should look at in economic studies if you're looking to invest in a company that's closing in on that development stage. Meanwhile, I also have a little bit of audio from a phone interview I did with the president and CEO of a new interesting looking zinc deal called Adventus Zinc. Uh, now, this is president and CEO Christian Cargill Samar, and he's going to talk a little bit about A, uh, putting the Adventus vehicle together, and B, about the zinc investment thesis and why we talked about this at, at length uh, in previous episodes, um, but why the zinc cycle may be a bit different than what we've seen over the past decade, if people recall. The last time zinc approached, you know, about $2 was around 2000 2007. Since then, it's been a pretty tepid market uh, with uh, prices staying well below a dollar for the large majority of it. Um, but we've seen a recent uh, rally. Um, so we'll talk to Christian a little bit about uh, the Adventus Zinc vehicle, which sort of caught my eye uh, because it's actually, well, essentially an IPO with properties uh, from Altius Minerals, a prospect generator and big royalty company out of Eastern Canada. Uh, they put the properties from Ireland and the Bathurst camp into Adventus um, and also some cash in the, in the form of the uh, seed financing and, and private placements etc. Um, and they also have investment from Resource Capital Funds, uh, who we know is sort of a big, uh, bigger base metal player. They have some money in Well Green Platinum, for example, um, as well as a variety of other projects across Canada, but RCF is involved. And then Greenstone Capital, who's a private equity outfit out of the UK, who I'm familiar with as well. Um, so they have some institutional backing that makes it pretty interesting. Uh, so uh, we'll get a little bit of comment from Christian on Adventus, um, and also how they're sort of like an acquisition vehicle. So they're looking for a, a, a way to sort of mobile some of this institutional capital. So it's an interesting interview. Um, but before we get into that, um, I just thought I'd uh, crack through our macro really quickly, uh, just because there is some uh, some ongoing issues we should mention. Uh, one last week we did uh, dig into at length the copper supply concerns. Uh, nothing has really happened to alleviate that. In fact, uh, BHP Billiton's situation at Escondida in Chile appears to be getting a little bit more um, uh, stressed, and 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 the negotiations with the labor unions is not going particularly well. Uh, apparently, um, I got a note from. Scotiabank this morning that a uh, government-mediated meeting between BHP uh, and the striking workers uh, has failed. uh, and uh, the company, uh, it was not available for comment. Um, but uh, so there is no sign of sort of light at the end of the tunnel for the Escondida strike at this point in time. Uh, further complicating matters for copper supply. Freemore, Freeport McMoran is now threatening to sue Indonesia over the mine dispute over Grasberg. Uh, so this is an, just another thing just to sort of tick the boxes here as we sort of see that that supply tightening going on in the copper space um and that's one of the things that's really driven um driven some of these price increases we've seen uh copper was up at almost two dollars and 75 cents per pound at the time of recording uh meanwhile gold was at 1238 dollars per ounce silver was at 17 dollars and 99 cents per ounce and uh west texas intermediate was trading at 54 dollars and 11 cents 
per barrel. Uh, now, in terms of gold, we'll just mention this really, really briefly. Uh, the big thing we're looking at is a upcoming uh, rate increase in the U.S. Uh, Scotiabank also noted that the heads of five regional U.S. Fed branches are scheduled to speak this week. Uh, the U.S. dollar has been rallying sharply after two Fed members suggested that a March rate hike is a strong possibility. So markets, look, be on the lookout for clues in the federal meeting minutes tomorrow. Uh, so just keep your eyes on that. Uh, in terms of gold, uh, if we want to get into a little bit more industrials, iron ore, uh, China's strengthening steel market uh, continues to prop up iron ore prices. Seaborne uh, uh, reaching about $95 per ton and domestic iron ore on uh, reaching about $106 per ton. Um, that surge also came uh, despite BHP warning that iron ore prices could move lower to inventory levels. So just some stuff to watch in terms of iron ore. Uh, on the Met coal front, uh, prices for seaborne coke and coal uh, bounced off recent uh, lows of about $150 per ton. Uh, we're trading at about $157 per ton at the time of recording. Of recording and so that wraps up our macro for the week uh and without further ado i think we're going to get right into the geology corner uh this is leslie talking a little bit about vetting uh technical reports and sort of some common tricks companies might use to make their deposit look more economic than it might actually be in reality uh these include considerations like sociopolitics and also metallurgy uh grade distribution things like that uh so i'll let leslie get into that um and on the uh, flip side i will We'll uh, just, uh, again, intro uh, the Adventist Zinc comments, and uh, we'll run those as well. Uh, so I'll see you in a bit. For this week's podcast, you know, we're going to step back from the geology, mm -hmm. right? And get a little bird-eye view on what actually makes a deposit economic. Oh, okay. Dun-dun-dun. So nice. as Aristotle once said... The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Yep, I remember. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about everything from political risks, remoteness, engineering challenges, metallurgy, you know, all the things that actually make a world-class deposit world-class, and what you need to know to perhaps spot the imposters. That, that's a good skill to have. <laughs> yeah, just to kick it off, um, I guess we'll talk about manipulating numbers. So, say uh, you have a 50 million ounce gold, 50 million ton copper porphyry deposit that's in a super remote region and it's an advanced stage project the company wants to put in production, perhaps has a PEA, and the numbers look great. But the question is, well, are they? Probably not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, companies are actually able to skirt around some of their economic issues by manipulating numbers in their economic studies. So one particular way to hide a marginal economic deposit is by cranking up the mining throughput and decreasing the cutoff grade. So by doing that, a company can lower its unit cost by you know, pitching 120,000 tons per day mill. So the project looks like it has an operating profit, but all the money was sunk in the capital expenditures up front. And remember, numbers and PEAs are super crude. There's a lot of wiggle room there to generate a favorable outcome. If the report is at PFS or feasibility stage, then everything becomes a lot more defined. And then the wiggle room there to boost NPV and IRR is probably the price of metals used in the report. Yeah, that's popular. Yep, yeah, that's super popular. So, and second, talking about manipulating numbers, on to the next thing when it comes to communication. 
Copper equivalence is not exactly a reliable gauge on the grade of the deposit. Another way to make a deposit look better than what it is, is to report everything in equivalence. Ron Nedelitsky, that famous explorer who found SNP in Eskay Creek, he once said to me, um, he's like, Leslie, I really like gold equivalence. It means I can add silica to it. <laughs> <laughs> Silica. Oh, there you go. And of course, he was joking. But, you know, it's funny because it's common for companies to add metals into their equivalents that they won't be able to recover, even if it went to mining, just to increase their grade. So in other circumstances, of course, using equivalents is totally normal. Just be sure to check the fine print to ensure the company are using, the company is using reasonable prices. Totally, this leads me to the third item. The amount of resource in the ground is not equivalent to the amount of metal that comes out. Mm -hmm. Right, funny. I've seen some resource calculations assume 100% recovery of the metal, which is an illusion because it's impossible for that to happen. In <laughs> fact, Northern Dynasty, I looked at their mineral statement and they, they assume 100% recovery, which I didn't know. Very interesting. So if you have a company that says there's 8 million ounces of gold in the ground, but may only recover 5 million ounces of gold out of it because of metallurgical issues that prevent gold from being recovered during processing. The same thing goes for copper, of course. Mm -hmm. So again, for investors, check the resource statement for the fine print that says how much of the metal is recoverable and check the metallurgy, yeah. like you said. And as we learned in the recent Arizona mining brouhaha, check out for smelter penalties and totally. byproducts that might be detrimental to downstream products as well. Yeah, this is other stuff. Yeah. So number four, this is the next one. Mm. How the company plans to process the ore. Yep. <laughs> I love these. I'm doing this funny like. <laughs> I'm really getting into this. So whether the company plans to produce its own dore or send the concentrate to a smelter can affect the project's economics like you just alluded to. Very much. If your gold goes to a smelter, you have to pay the smelter. So the company could end up getting maybe 70% of the revenue. Whereas if a company produces its own dore, then they get 100% of that cash. So if a company goes with a smelter, out of that 5 million ounces they were able to recover from that 8 million ounce deposit, they're only generating revenue from maybe 3.5 million ounces of gold. So it's perhaps not as so much of a world-class deposit or world-class investment as an investor had initially hoped. The domino effect here, that's important to pay attention to, and I'm only seriously skipping the surface. Um, and there's sorts of, th these are sorts of things that, like the analysts, that the really experienced analysts take into account when they visit these projects and mm -hmm. they inquire about. If you ever go on a site visit with analysts, these are the questions that they're asking. But anyway, let's get back to this 50 million ounce gold, 50 million ton copper or 50 million pound copper gold deposit that the company wants to produce at a whopping rate of 120,000 tons per day. <laughs> so let's think of it here. When a company is hoping to develop a huge deposit like that, it's going to require a massive tailings dam and a ton of infrastructure. It basically becomes a lightning bolt for anti-mining groups and regulatory issues. Well, that's like last Part week, remember uh, when we had our friend Mickey Fulp, mercenary geologist on, he mentioned Pebble East because they can mine that underground, mm -hmm. which he said might be a little bit easier to permit, but also potentially more economic, right? Totally, and that's one of the examples of 
you know, how so many of these world-class ore bodies get sterilized because mm-hmm. of local opposition. Northern Dynasty clearly won. Um, mm-hmm. Barracks Pas- Pasquilama mm-hmm. is another, like, star example. So for a project of that scale, it's important to take a look around at the environmental risks and, of course, see if there's any local or indigenous opposition to the project because they can certainly erect some roadblocks, like literally and figuratively, and prevent any world-class deposit from seeing the light of day. Yep. Uh, yeah. Now, of yeah. course, the big, big risk here is political, mm. right? If the project is in a politically unstable country, then you want to get in and out of there as fast as you can. <laughs> and there's three, that means like three things. Number one, high grade. Number two, high grade. Number three, high grade. High grade. And that's why the Congo works so well, because copper deposits there are 3% copper. So you can mine it, get a quick payback on your investment capital, and then you can sit back and relax a little more because you're in the green. It's all free cash flow. It's all free cash flow. But sometimes even getting investment capital capital can be really difficult if a company wants to operate in a risky country, because that cost of capital goes up on interest rates alone, because the banks won't lend money to companies at the same rates as they would for companies who want to build a mine in like Ontario, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So, and lastly, water, power, and export. So, a big little bit of uh, bag here. It's all super important um, when trying to get metals from a world-class deposit to the world. And if you haven't noticed, much of none of it's in Northwest Territories ore production. It's from diamonds and gold. Mm -hmm. And um, that's because diamonds and gold mines can overcome the remoteness because they're shipping out these little itty bitty stones and small gold bars. So you said infrastructure is not a big problem when you can take your stuff out in a, in a suitcase. <laughs> suitcase. Yeah, that's what everyone always says. Like, you take the dory out in a suitcase, you're probably right. <laughs> then your best kind. You'd be like fifty dollar extra charge at the Air Canada flight desk when you're going home. Yeah, don't. Yeah, don't tell anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just. Don't tell <laughs> Why is it? I'll just put this extra heavy baggage like tag on your thing. Yeah, that's so, what charters are for. Yeah. So yeah. whereas all the former base metal mines up there like Polaris right none of it um, they're if you notice they're all along the coast mm-hmm. that's because they're con- they're shipping their co- they ship their concentrate out super easily yeah so you know you'd be hard-pressed to get a VMS in production that far north if it's inland yes so something else to really think about for the average investor um, and of course you need water power to run a mine in some regions of the world don't have much of either and sometimes they even have too much water so one example zambia first quantum had to shut down one of their mines there a couple of years ago or a year ago because the local power grid got sentinel. maxed out sentinel yeah. thank you yeah. and a lot of projects aren't going forward because there's no power to get them on the go that's an interesting point though when crazy. your project can tap out an entire domestic power grid that's <laughs> when uh, so you know you're in a you're helping with infrastructure probably yeah yeah oh gosh yeah so and then on the other end we know the water in chile is a huge issue and can strap on like massive capex to a project especially if you have to desalinate from the ocean and you name it um, and of course there's some countries that just have too much water so you know your giant one hundred and twenty thousand ton per day uh, tailings facility sort of thing it's in this tropical rainforest yeah. I mean what's water going to do to that so of course that puts on extra costs on on your engineering so I know I've been rambling 
I know it all sounds super negative, <laughs> and everything I've said is a shocking wonder that we even have minds in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> not, not really. Like you said, no. Brady can overcome a lot of things. Totally. Yeah. So a true world-class deposit, especially, especially driven by the right team, will overcome all of these issues and become a win-win for everyone and everything involved. There's no doubt about it. So my word for advice today to anybody who has been listening, um, if investors want to put money into a company with an advanced stage target, um, maybe you ought to find a competent analyst and get their report um, from them before you know, deciding their next move. Because if you don't, you could just be you know, throwing a bone to a dog. Or get a subscription to the Northern Mind. That's right. Yeah. You've been like taking words out of my mouth all the time. <laughs> totally. Get a subscription to the Northern Miner. And the yeah. reason why is because we actually do our homework when we cover companies. Mm -hmm. And we speak to heaps of people to ensure we're touching on all the right issues. And there's seriously nobody else out there like us. And I'm not saying that because I'm biased. I'm an honest, genuine woman. And I will always speak the truth. And that's the truth for me. And I don't like anything. What do you mean? I just don't like any projects. Oh. <laughs> Until they're actually in production and making free cash loans. Like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That's funny. You're always a cynic. You always see? be a cynic, yeah. 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 But, you know, on the other end, <clears throat> for earlier stage targets like our Greenfields friends, I'm a really big believer in just letting them grow into their own right before making any convicting judgment calls on the political climate, infrastructure, local opposition, environment. You wouldn't give a five-year-old braces until their teeth have actually grown into place. Mm -hmm. So please don't oppress a Greenfield's exploration play with any preconceived notions on what it may actually become. But that's me. I'm a contrarian at heart. Well, the big thing you're hearing now from a lot of explorers is you've got to start your social license. And I hate that term, by the way. But you've got to start that process really early. Like, yeah, right away. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so something you should to do invest anyway. in. Invest in right up front. Right? Yeah, it's like anything. You don't want somebody coming into your community and and just creating something without even talking to the community, mm -hmm. yeah. without anybody talking to you about it. It's like if someone came into Strathcona and decided <laughs> to put like. Like know. a railway or something. Yeah. Actually, they just reactivated that railway from the port along Clark. Oh. It's annoying. Oh. They didn't ask. They didn't ask. But that's the scene. <laughs> that's, that's the scene. But anyway, you have yeah. been listening to the Northern Miners Geology Podcast. Not so much geology today, but definitely a little bit of a broader look. Yeah, yeah. I think it's pretty topical given uh, what's come out with Northern Dynasty and the Caresdale Short Report and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, and we're talking about a lot of, as metal prices have gone out, a lot of these projects are sort of coming back to the Poor forefront. Poor free coppers are coming back to the yeah, forefront. Sort of and they're all world-class, so yeah. it's always a matter yeah, it's a, of... It's a, it's a very popular comp compound adjective amongst uh, yeah. development stage copper gold companies. So, yeah. Um, But yes, this has been the Geology Corner. Yeah. And we will talk to you next, next week. week.
And welcome back to studio. Uh, Leslie said that wasn't geology related, but I think it was. I think it was nicely geology related. So that's another great geology corner. Uh, thanks again to Leslie for uh, dropping in and uh, giving us a few tips and tricks uh, in terms of uh, sort of wading through those forty three one hundred one reports, which can be absolute behemoths. Uh, so yeah, do do check that out. Also, as mentioned uh, during the segment, please do surf over to northernminer.com. Check out our subscription section. Uh, totally worth it, and uh, you get to uh, read a lot of really cool exclusive interviews with CEOs. EOs, uh, get exposure to some things you might not otherwise. Um, and as always, please do uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, check out our YouTube channel, um, and leave us some comments on SoundCloud as well, because we always like to uh, hear from listeners. Um, so now, uh, let's uh, let's fast forward uh, here to uh, a little bit of a segment on Adventist Zinc. As noted, uh, it's an interesting new vehicle that has uh, seems to have capital to uh, deploy in terms of picking up zinc assets. Uh, one of the things uh, I had a chance to talk to uh, the president and CEO as mentioned uh, previously, um, and the one thing we talked about, uh, which he will get into, uh, Christian will get into in the segment, um, is that there's really a lack of sort of large-scale zinc projects that are uh, you know publicly listed or available. A lot of them are not in junior companies. Uh, there's been a real dearth of exploration capital uh, in the zinc space over the past decade. Um, so now that uh, we're seeing sort of a, the corner turn um, specifically on the supply side, which we'll also get into during the segment, um, there's more attention being paid to where the next uh, next uh, stage of zinc development assets is going to come from. Um, and, and Adventus is one of the companies that's, that's hoping to step into that gap um, and pick up some of these projects and advance them um, and have them ready for when we need, which is probably coming up pretty quickly, uh, some new zinc projects to meet uh, the galvanized steel supply ex- uh, demand, I should say, etc. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's get into it. Uh, there's just a few, it's a, it's a short little clip uh, from a phone interview I did with Christian. So this is this is a new segment uh, straight from the phone. So do forgive if the uh, the recording quality is a little bit lower than studio. Uh, but nevertheless, the uh, the information is super valuable, and it's a really interesting introduction uh, to a new zinc vehicle. Um, and uh, uh, as Christian will mention, during the, or he actually doesn't mention it during the segment, uh, but he was previously an investment banker at Raymond James. Uh, so he has a background in the uh, uh, sort of following the commodity cycle as well. So he has some interesting things to say about that. Uh, so I will run this, and I'll see you on the other side just to uh, say goodbye uh, and wrap the show up. We worked on the business plan uh, in the second half of last year uh, where we would use those properties as a basis to go public. We'd, of course, do work on them. They're, they're excellent properties. But uh, we'd, we'd also have a complementary business plan where we'd want to become or we, we've become the premier publicly listed zinc acquisition vehicle. Okay. And in, in order for that to, to come into play, uh, we needed to uh, really work on on credibility. So everything we've done to date is 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 about credibility, and uh, that leads number one with our shareholder register. So we have uh, three strategic shareholders. Um, first one is Resource Capital Funds, which I'm sure you're aware of, um, and uh, we are their zinc acquisition vehicle of choice. And then uh, Greenstone Resources, which is a private equity group out of London. Uh, put uh, some money in, and we are also their zinc acquisition vehicle of choice. They are uh, a, a group of base metal um, investors primarily, um, and uh, they realized base metals is a economies of scale type of game. And uh, with the size of fund, they couldn't really tackle larger uh, projects, in particular in zinc. 
and uh, they wanted to combine their money with other like-minded investors. The types of projects we're looking for, uh, generally, number one, first and second world countries. Yeah. Uh, number number two, it has to uh, be only sulfide resources. We're not looking at any oxides or sulfates. Uh, and really, when I go through this criteria with you, it's all based on uh, down the road, if we have, if we're fortunate to uh, be in a position where we can sell the company or there's a lot of interest to, to buy us, uh, we're trying to maximize the potential M&A interest at that time. And we believe that sulfide deposits are, are the way to go, not, not uh, oxides or, or sul- sulfates. Um, in terms of a size of potential production, we're looking at um, 100,000 tons per annum in production per year. Um most publicly listed uh, kind of junior developers have projects that have significantly lower production rates than that. Um, only one that really easily beats that is is Arizona Mining. Uh, and you know, part of the thesis of creating this company is to create another uh, strong zinc vehicle for for investors to invest in that has scale of production, potential scale of production scale resource, uh, and will you know will cater to the institutional investors. I think uh, demand story is kind of a boring story. Most about over sixty percent of zinc goes to galvanized steel for vehicles. That's a dirty business. Uh, it's a it's a it's uh, zinc is a metal that's growing at maybe two to three percent a year. Um, so there's no real new use for it, but at the same time, there's no substitution for for zinc. What is the real driver for this longer um, peak of the cycle is uh, is the fact that over the last uh, few years, so since 2015 and going to the end of this decade, about 1.2 million tons of zinc production is coming off the market. And this is coming off the market from some major mines that have been in production, some of them in production for many decades. So in particular, Century, um, uh, Brunswick, uh, Scorpion, uh, Machine. Um, so the ho- overall zinc, primary zinc market is only around 13 million tons a year. And uh, you've taken 1.2 million tons out in a very short time frame. And now you have uh, some catch-up to do. So as you know, mines can't uh, start up overnight. No, no. Especially when uh, there's been a lack of uh, investment for uh, for so many decades, and uh, and hence this is why the situation is uh, is brewing, I guess you could say. Uh, um, and uh, the in general, the the projects that are in junior public companies, they're the size of maybe thirty to seventy five thousand tons per annum of zinc. Yeah. And so you need a lot of those mines to make up one point two million. And welcome back to studio. Uh, so yeah, that was a good chat, not just uh, on the company Adventus, uh, but also the general zinc market, um, which has been getting a lot of buzz heading into 2017. Uh, we've seen some of Tech Resources, big Canadian majors marketing material, uh, touting zinc. Glencore has been uh, mentioning zinc exposure. So it is sort of a buzzing commodity right now. Uh, if people recall, uh, at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, uh, Brent Cook and Joe Mazumdar also mentioned, oh, uh, watch out for a lot of new public zinc vehicles at PDAC. So I'll keep our eyes 
open for that. Uh, but once again, this has been the show. Uh, thanks very much for listening to the Northern Miner Podcast. We do appreciate it. Please do check us out on social media. And this has been Matthew Keeble. I'll talk to you next week.